The Bible loves rivalries. Read the pages of the Bible, you are gonna find rivalries set up from the beginning. I mean, it goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, okay? You have Jacob in Esau, you have Pharaoh in Moses, you have Jesus and the Pharisees. But it's not just at the individual level. Because what you see is rivalries even with Israel as a nation itself. We could think of David and Goliath maybe as one of the most favorite, but what that represents, because we see Israel versus Egypt, Israel versus Canaan, Israel versus Assyria, Israel versus Babylon. These rivalries that continue to come up through the Bible, these head-to-head contests where you're kind of left as the spectator, who is going to come out on top? Who is going to win? We all kind of get into these things, don't we? These rivalries, you guys have your own favorite it, like, in your life? I was just like looking up what like some of the classic sports rivalries are. I mean, like, just shout some out. Like, what, what, what would you give is maybe like favorite sports rivalry? Bears-Packers. Bears, this close to the border, it's like the most self-evident one there is, right? What, what else you got? Cubs-St. Louis. Cubs-Cardinals, okay? Cubs? One. Cardinals? Nobody likes baseball. Okay. All right. Let's, let's switch this way. What if we go to like, um, what is it? The New Zealand black versus, or the all blacks out of New Zealand, right? Versus um, South Africa. Because if you're not into baseball, you must be into rugby, right? All blacks? Yeah. Okay. Crickets. Okay. South Africa. Let, let's start here. Who has heard of the nation New Zealand? Yeah. All right. All right. And South Africa? Okay, maybe college sports are more your scene. Duke or North Carolina? Duke? Ah, come on, guys. You got to give me something here to work with. Let's go this way. Ohio State or Michigan? Ohio State. Michigan. You know what it convinces me here this morning? You guys aren't fighters. You're lovers. All right? Robbery's got no place in your life. But I tell you this, you'll find them throughout the Bible. Israel and Egypt, Israel and Assyria, Israel and Canaan, Israel and Babylon. And now what I want you to do is climb into the worldview of the Bible a little bit. Because behind each of these rivalries is something greater. Just like rivalries today almost have puppets, puppet masters, if you will, powers that be, that seem to be controlling the pawns or the pieces on the game. It's the same in the pages of the Bible. Because in the worldview of the people, especially the Old Testament, behind these rivalries of Israel and Egypt, Israel and the nations, Israel and Canaan, Israel and Assyria, you follow me, right? Israel and Babylon is something else, something deeper, something more sinister, if you will. The gods. Because behind every rivalry the people of Israel find themselves embroiled in is a deeper rivalry, if you will. A rivalry between Yahweh and the gods. And this rivalry between Yahweh and the gods finds itself percolating up into the rivalries between God's people and those that stand against them 
and more importantly, what stands behind what stands against them. I want to talk to you today about the gods, little g, plural s, the gods. In the Old Testament, they were polytheistic, which by definition means they believed in all sorts of gods. The same is actually true in the Greco-Roman world, the New Testament world as well. They believed in a world of thousands and thousands of gods. And here's how it worked. They would take a look at the world and they would see, this world is a powerful place. There are forces at work in this world that are big, mysterious, and unknown. And at times, these forces seem very methodical and predictable. But at other times, there's no telling what these forces are going to do. So they could look up and go, it rains. And with some level of predictability, there's rain. And every spring, we can expect rain is going to come and start to kind of base our lives on a predictability around this power that we can't control. But there's times when it just doesn't seem to happen the way it's supposed to. Or spring comes and it doesn't rain. Or summer comes and it rains too much. Where the powers around us are doing things and interacting in ways that we find ourselves victims to. Well, any fool can catch a handful of rain and look at the water and go, it doesn't seem to have a personality. It doesn't seem to have a mind of its own. Therefore, there must be things behind these things. Powers at work, or maybe better, personalities that control these powers and they would personify them as gods. And one of the hardest things I think maybe you would agree with me in this world is when you find yourself trying to do life before things that are bigger than you, more powerful than you, that you cannot control, that are unpredictable. It leaves you kind of in a victim's place. Would you agree? And isn't much of our uncertainty in life and the terror that we carry in life rooted precisely in these bigger, greater, stronger things that are out of our ability to manipulate, control, or direct. And so in the ancient world, the people turned to the gods. They turned to these powers, these, these beings or personifications behind the powers that they realized that would be. Trying to get them to do what they wanted them to do. Trying to maybe get them off they're back. Unlike the way that we think about God today, is someone that we have a relationship with, uh, someone that we, that we root ourselves with, with love and devotion and loyalty. The way of the Old Testament, the way of the New Testament, the polytheistic worldview was very different than this kind of thing. No, the gods were ones that you did not really enter into relationship with as much as ones that you either sought to bribe to your side or get off your back. I've shared this with some of you before, but the best analogy I can give to this 
is to think of them like the mafia. Very few people today enter into a personal relationship with the mafia. But in many parts of the world today, our own country included, organized crime continues as a greater power to direct and dictate what is going to be. That my business is dependent and at the mercy of what organized crime in this area says it will be. That my livelihood and my life, depending on the course that it's taken, is going to be influenced and impacted by these powers that be. So what do you do? Well, one of two things. You try to get them in your favor to at least be batting on your side, or you try to buy them off so that they will go their own way. This is the mentality of life with the gods. Not only in the time of Isaiah, but even through the time of Jesus. We stand in this world with these powers around us. Powers out there, powers in here. That we feel unable to control. So we set up rituals. We pray to them, we call to them. We sacrifice to them, we bribe them. Or try to buy them off. So at best, they'll help me. Or at worst, they'll leave me alone. And it gets difficult when you sit there in this ancient world, realizing like we do today, that there's so much going on around us that we have no ability to dictate. Wondering, what do I do in the face of it? when it all comes crashing down around me. Welcome to the rivalries of the Bible. Israel and Egypt. Israel and Canaan. Israel and Assyria. Israel and Babylon. The people of Israel standing before these nations that are bigger, stronger, and able to chart the course of their destiny going, what do I do in the face of it? And of course, it begs a question, how do you know which God, which power, which one to turn to, which is stronger? Well, I guess for the risk of oversimplifying here, the way they did it was the way that we do it today. You see what works. That person's more successful. What are they doing? I'm going to do that. That person is stronger and healthier. Who are they turning to? I'm going to do that. This nation is powerful, prospering. What power is behind them? I'm going to turn to that. And so the temptation was always there for the people of God to look at these other powers, these other gods wondering am I better off there? Am I safer there? Is this the one whom Yahweh contends with that I might be better turning to? This is the world of the Bible. 
and the world of people for thousands of years of history in many parts of the world, even through today, of how to deal with the powers, with the gods. Now, I think today, the difficulty of something like this, of, of talking about something like this, is, is, is it kind of... Well, the average American, if, it's, if he struggles with anything, he probably struggles with even believing in one God, let alone a multiplicity of gods, right? And so when we talk about the gods, it kind of feels quaint. It feels a little bit silly or superstitious. Something that, that, that more simple-minded people were duped by back then, but maybe not someone nearly as, as educated or sophisticated is me. But, but I want to challenge you on this because I think it comes down to your definition of God. If I talk about an idol, you probably think of a little tiki engraved thing that someone is bowing down and worshiping to or giving some sacrifice to, right? And if I talk about a God, you think about some power that might be in the universe, be it Zeus or Thor or Artemis or whoever it might be from mythology, these, these fun to read but hardly believable stories from age to go. But there's this Augustinian monk, a former Catholic priest, who wrote this book, and he gives a definition of God that kind of strikes me today, something that I think transcends beyond an us-versus-them mentality when we talk about the gods. His name's Martin Luther, and he wrote this book called The Large Catechism. And right in the beginning, commenting on the Ten Commandments, he says this, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. If you've ever learned the Ten Commandments, you know this one, right? You shall have no other gods before me. I think it maybe even demands we stop and pause just for a second to realize how big a deal the gods were in the biblical world that the number one commandment on the top ten deals with them. You should have no other gods before me. But this is what I'm more interested in. He writes this. To rephrase this, you are to regard me alone as your God, Yahweh says. And he asks, what does this mean? How is one to understand it? What is it to have a God? Or, to put it this way, what is one's God? Listen to his answer. To whatever we look for, any good thing. So to whatever we look for, any good thing, and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in something from the heart. As I've often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart, nothing else, that makes both God and idol. If your faith and confidence are directed rightly, then your God is the true God. But if, on the other hand, your trust is in something false, if it is misdirected, then you do not have the true God. For these two, faith and God, belong together. And listen to this last sentence. 
to whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that I say is really your God. Let me say it again. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that I say is really your God. So let me ask you, to what do you give your heart? To what do you entrust your being? In the times of fright and in the times of uncertainty, what do you seek for deliverance and refuge? From what is it that you derive your strength and inner sense of being? By this definition, that is your God. And you know what strikes me by that? We who think that we are monotheists or atheists or maybe even agnostics, the reality is I think each and every one of us are polytheists and idolatrous to the core because which of us can't say that we find, well, to use the words again, that we give our hearts and entrust our beings. Which of us can't say that we give our hearts and entrust our beings to things other than Yahweh? If you do, that becomes a part of the pantheon of your gods. And it sobers me to realize that those people from the days of Isaiah weren't nearly as superstitious or simple-minded as we think they are. All of us have gods. Or maybe I should put it this way. Let's use the New Testament term. Because oftentimes in the pages of the New Testament, it won't talk about the gods like Isaiah and the Old Testament will. It will use a different word instead. Powers. So let me phrase it this way. What are the powers in this world to which you seek your help and trust your being and give your heart? Because whatever label you want to put on it, that power is your God. And there's not a one of us who wouldn't look at the world to say that there are powers at work around us. There are social powers, cultural powers, political powers, internal powers. Each of us can look at things that stand outside of us, that are bigger than us, and that can overwhelm us. And each of us, I think, can look at things inside of us in the exact same way. Yeah, there's powers in this world, and the New Testament isn't afraid to talk about them. And the power that they hold and use and give sway, because I promise you this, the powers of this world affect your life. They will interact with your life and they will demand your allegiance. Not just one, but many. The powers of this world are out there. 
And they, at some level, will seek to demand your allegiance. And this happens, of course, in all kinds of ways. Sometimes they will threaten you. Give me your allegiance or else. Turn to me or else. Pay homage to me or else. I think of the church of Ephesus. In the New Testament, Paul writing to, you know, Ephesians, to the Ephesus, but also 1 Timothy, where the power they feared was related to childbearing. Imagine living in a world, women, where odds were in your favor that one out of every three of your children would die before they hit two months old. Imagine living in a world, women, where your chances of dying were one in four every time you had one. Imagine for a moment women living in a world where there was no such thing as birth control to stave childbearing off. What do you do? How do you live in a world with that threat, with that power? The ancient mythologies would talk about this, this personification behind it, this, this goddess, if you will. Her name was Artemis. She was the patron saint, if you will, or the goddess of childbearing. Highly ironic, because she was known to be fiercely beautiful and fiercely adamant about virginity. So you're a woman and you find yourself pregnant. You're about to give birth. What's going to happen to me? What if Artemis strikes me down? In fear, you would go to her temple. You would give a sacrifice. You would try to placate her and buy her off. And so Timothy is written in the Bible. Paul writes to this pastor in Timothy trying to lead people through this fear of the powers that be. You don't have to engage in worship to this goddess Artemis. No, Christ will save you through childbearing. What powers, though, are you turning to? What are you seeking? What are the powers that seek to threaten you that you find yourself tempted to give allegiance to? So what they wield doesn't come smashing down on you. But it's not just through threats. Because sometimes the powers of this world, they take a different tactic. And you know it full well. Sometimes they try to entice you, seduce you, win you over, show you the good life and how good it can be for you if you would only. This was the tactic of Satan in the desert with Jesus. If you will just bow down and worship me, Satan told Christ, all these kingdoms of the world will be yours. Pretty hard deal to pass up when the alternative is a cross at the nation's hands. This is what the book of Revelation is about in the New Testament. The power of Rome the seduction of Rome, personified as a beast. Capturing the people of this world in awe and wonder so they would bow down and worship. Even described as a prostitute, a harlot. 
one who is seductive, one who seeks to win you over, one who you want, trying to win your allegiance over to them. But I think most about the powers that are inside. What are the things that rage inside you, at work inside you, that seem to drive you and dictate what you do? You know the struggle full well. There's not a one of us that's really integrated and whole, is there? No, instead, each of us battling things at work, within, motivations, feelings, thoughts, things that seem even foreign to us at times, yet so a part of us. And we find ourselves near powerless before them. Again and again, I love how the New Testament puts this. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to a power that he calls sin. See if you resonate. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin, this power living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature because I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. What I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's this power, sin, living in me that does it, so I find this law at work. Can you resonate? When I want to do good, the power of evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another power at work, a law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the power and law of sin. Which of you has never felt this final line? What a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from, fill in the blank with that power. Who will rescue me from that? Who will rescue me from that? Who will rescue me from this power of death? Who will rescue me from this power of sin? Who will rescue me from this thing inside? Who will rescue me from this thing on the outside? Because we all face it. We all face powers that are bigger than us in this world. Who will rescue me from it? And it can lead us it can lead us to this place of looking at the rivalry of God who invites us to trust in him, but this power that seems so much more active, so much bigger, so much more alive, and doesn't it sometimes? Going, who do I turn to? How do I hedge my bets? What power is going to win? What I love about the rivalries of the Bible, though, is as hard as the struggle might look to be, time and time again, there is no doubt. Who is more powerful and who is going to win? 
I think of some of these rivalries in history that proved to be no rivalries at all. Now, I grew up on Nintendo. How about you? Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Do you ever have it? Do you ever play it? Do you guys remember the Mike Tyson era? Remember like when he was 20 years old, the youngest heavyweight fighter ever, and this guy was like, he was like the new Muhammad Ali. This guy was unstoppable. Anyone remember that fight he had with, what was it, Marvis Frazier? Do you remember this one? Remember Joe Frazier? Was that his name? His dad? World heavyweight champion before him? And now Tyson versus his son? People in, a do- in dollars adjusted today? Spending anywhere from $3,000 to $13,000 for ringside seats. Do you remember this match? It was like four punches and that was it. I mean, can you imagine if like you had to go to the bathroom before you left and you were three minutes late and you bought a $3,000 ticket and you show up and it's like, that's it? Oh, this was hailed as the rivalry of all time. There's no rivalry at all. Tyson dominated that fight. And after that, there was no questions of rivalries. We knew who was going to win. A little closer to home for me. I remember when UFC began in 91. Hoist Gracie was on the scene, reintroducing Brazilian jiu-jitsu back into the Western Hemisphere. And the rivalry between him and Ken Shamrock, back and forth, more and more. And since then, the UFC has tried to capture these rivalries ever since, poising people against each other. Who's going to win, right? I want to show you a video of the shortest MMA match in history. Happened in Vegas back in July of uh, uh, 2019, just a year and a half ago, okay? I'm going to show you the whole match. Here it is. Jason Herzog back in there for this one. Ariane Celeste is here. Brittany Palmer, Brooklyn Wren also on hand. Gamebred is in the building. And these guys just flapping gums at each other. Any chance they get. The fight clock is brought to you by Modelo. Did you even see what happened? Like, I, I was watching this at home, and I had to put it into slow-mo just to kind of even, like, figure out, like, w- w- what? Here it is in slow-mo, okay? Here it is in slow-mo. Show it again. No volume on this. The match starts. And there it is. Even in slow-mo, it's like, what? That, that's it? And there are powers at work facing off in the ring. Yahweh and the gods, Yahweh and the powers, Yahweh and the forces that be that seem to dictate this world and dictate what's within. Can I ask you this question? Who is going to win? Because Yahweh says it is no contest. This is at best a five-second MMA fight. Are you kidding me? You think this is a rivalry? No, the Bible makes it clear. When it comes to the powers at work in this world, 
They don't hold a candle to the God of the universe whose power beyond power brings the wind. Let me read to you what Isaiah says from Isaiah 46. To whom will you compare me or count me as equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales and hire a goldsmith to make them a god. And they bow down and they worship it. They lift it on their shoulders and carry it. They set it in its place and there it stands. But from its spot, it cannot even move. The one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his trouble. So remember this. Fix it in your mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do as I please. And I tell you this morning, seek God. And that's the power you'll find on your side. Better put, seek God. And when it comes to sides, you can be on his. And you will find that no matter what the powers of this world might be, outside or within, nothing, nothing, nothing can hold the slightest threat to the power of Yahweh. To whom do you entrust your being? To whom do you give your heart? There are plenty of contenders willing to step in the ring. But to whom will you give yours today?